This is Michael Osterlink, and I'm with Matt Fay. He's defense policy analyst for the Niskanen Center. How you doing, Matt? Doing good. How are you, Michael? Fantastic. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and the Niskanen Center. Well, uh, myself, I am, uh, like I said, foreign defense policy analyst uh, at Niskanen. And I uh, have a background in, I have uh, master's degrees in international relations and uh, uh, diplomatic history. My focus was on the uh, Cold War. Um, I studied a lot of uh, on nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence theory. Um, and now I've moved into uh, looking at uh, the defense budget and uh, uh, defense uh, ref uh, reform at the Department of Defense. Um, the Niskanen Center uh, is a libertarian 501c3. Uh, We're a uh, think tank. Uh, we are named for uh, Bill Niskanen, William Niskanen. He was a former chairman of the Cato Institute. Uh, he was an interim chairman of Ronald Reagan's Board of Economic Advisors. Um, has a lengthy, lengthy resume, a former chief economist at Ford Motor Company, but he actually started off as a defense policy analyst um, with the RAND Corporation, with the, um, uh, with, uh, the Institute for Defense Analysis, and also he was one of the whiz kids at Robert McNamara's Pentagon. Uh, so I have a uh, lot to live up to in my position. Um, but uh, Bill was a principled libertarian, uh, uh, but he was also a pragmatist in a lot of ways. Uh, and he, he, while he was an idealist, he was a realist and understood that sometimes we need to take the world the way it is and see practical solutions to get us closer to the libertarian ideas that we have. Fantastic. So we hear repeatedly from the Pentagon that we have a readiness crisis, mm -hmm. uh, and they blame it on the BCA caps, quote unquote, sequester. Mm -hmm. And I know that's something you you disagree with. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I, it's not that I necessarily disagree that there are readiness, readiness issues that stem from um, the uh, BCA caps. And it's important to distinguish between the BCA caps and the sequester. Some people use it as shorthand, but it is actually misleading um, because sequester scary. We've had a lot of people have talked about this recently. Um, but I, I, I don't doubt that when, when sequestration actually took place in 2013, when there were across-the-board cuts, it probably did affect readiness. The problem is we don't know how. We don't know in what way it did, and that's because the uh, Pentagon lacks good metrics for measuring when we're ready. Um, readiness, in some ways, is subjective um, uh, evaluation. Um, there's a, a lot of um, military analysts, scholars have, have looked at this issue. Um, one of them, who's a very prominent scholar, the best way he described it, and he didn't use these terms, but I will, it was... Um, it was like Potter Stewart, the uh, former Supreme Court justice, the way he um, uh, uh, characterized pornography in 1965. I can't tell you what it is, but I know what I know it when I see it. Um, but like I said, the subjectivity, there's a lot of money at stake in this subjective measure. Um, so there are reporting requirements under Section 483 of uh, Title 10 that the military must give to Congress. Um, now, Todd Harrison, who's a, um, uh, a budget analyst um, over at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, uh, did a study on this last year, and all of the actual um, reporting requirements, what the, the data that they give to Congress, are all inputs. So we flew this many flying hours, we had this many trainings, we had our equipment is this old. It doesn't say what any of that actually means for being ready. It doesn't measure any outputs. So it becomes, uh, as Todd termed it, a uh, self-licking ice cream cone. It's a, circular, uh, it, it's a circular logic to, we have enough money to do these trainings, therefore we're ready. 
we don't have enough money to do these trainings, therefore we're not. It doesn't say what the training actually buys you. Targets hit if you're if you're talking uh, about bombing missions. How far did you miss? Did you hit your target? If not, how far did you miss it by? How many more hours are necessary? How many more trainings are necessary to hit that target? And that's that. That information is not being given. It's not being used to measure. The information is actually available. It's not being used to measure uh, uh, readiness. And um, Todd has actually uh, come up with a new system. Uh, whether it's the best or not is you know uh, is subject to debate. But it would be where you use the actual outputs to determine whether uh, whether it's ready or not. So part of the problem is, like I said, is it probably did cutting the budget and in the way it was probably did affect readiness. We have no idea how, though, and that's the problem. Besides the readiness question, mm -hmm. and uh, I'd be curious if, if there's a URL you can point to for us to look into Harrison's report. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can say that later. Mm -hmm. uh, you have some concerns, some structural issues you'd like to see addressed, mm -hmm. which would make us more efficient and effective in terms mm -hmm. of uh, military readiness. Mm -hmm. Combat readiness, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the study is called Rethinking Readiness, is, is, is Todd's study. It's excellent. I, I highly recommend it. Um, uh, but as far as the, the problem, too, is even if we determine, you know, right now without good metrics um, that, we're, that we're not ready um, or that, say, we do plus up the budget without good me uh, metrics, we don't know if that's going to make us any better or not. I do also doubt that even if we did... Um, know that okay this is we're, we're not ready here or there that plusing up the budget is going to make us that much better off because we do have these kind of structural issues um one of the biggest problems is we have an outdated planning system our uh the the pentagon planning system is called uh, ppbe it's planning programming budgeting and execution it's based on a system called ppbs planning programming budgeting system it's a it's it's over five decades old now. It was brought into the Pentagon by McNamara uh, in 1961. At the time, it was a state of the art in corporate planning. He brought it over from Ford Motor Company, um, and it was based on all these quantitative measures of you know it, there were the, the planning strategy. It was one. It started what's what's our optimum strategy? Take resources out of it. It was completely top down. We're going to say this is our optimum strategy, and then we're going to work backwards from there. It's a top down, it's a hierarchical system, and there aren't really good feedback mechanisms there. And strategy is really an iterative process. It depends on one, what your your own bureaucracy, which as we all know, the Pentagon is a sprawling bureaucracy. Um, the feedback mechanisms from within and also from without, what what a potential adversary might do, what multiple adversaries might do. What happens when there isn't a central focus like the Soviet Union during the Cold War? So what what corporations found is in the 70s when the economy got very turbulent, um, that this system, this what was state of the art in the in the 50s and 60s, no longer really worked for them in this more complex environment. So they started moving away from it, and they moved it by the 80s. They had completely gone away from it. This is still the system we have in place today. And right now, especially in a more complex environment that we have right now, I would hesitate, I would, I would feel very safe to say we're in a much less threatening environment uh, than we were during the Cold War, but it's also more complex. We don't have a single adversary. So you need to find different ways of, of getting feedback um, in that environment to tell you what, whether what you're doing is right or wrong. So th this was borrowed, borrowed from the Ford Motor Company mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Is there a new model that's being used in the corporate world, which you would say, oh, that's a good model to at least 
a modifier for use by the Pentagon, or is it something that needs to be created? Well, there are several options, and I, I, I there's one uh, a a one analyst uh, described, and I think it's pretty good because it would work in some ways with the Pentagon's current structure, um, which. You're, you're, you're never going to be able to emulate, you know, the business world, the market environment uh, completely. Um, but what, what a lot of corporations started doing is they started going to uh, more of a bottom-up system where you had your operating units doing a lot of your information. You had kind of planners and doers working together um, on the same level instead of planners up top and telling the doers what to do uh, because there's disconnects in information there. So uh, some people have recommended um, that you go to something where there's this more bottom-up. And I think this works well with some of the uh, theories of, um, of a professor out of uh, MIT named Harvey Sapolsky, who's done some great work, some very interesting work on inter-service competition, is you let the, serv- the, 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 the services act more decentralized. Mm-hmm. What we've done, what we've seen since um, the beginning, since the end of World War II, as beginning of the Department of Defense, is this centralizing tendency. Um, it's, it's been going on uh Basically, since the National Security Act was, was signed, uh, reforms in the late 50s, McNamara's reforms centralized it further, um, and it really came to a head with Goldwater Nichols, um, which tried to not necessarily unify, but unify without unifying the services in, in essence. And you, you continue to see the centralizing tendency and to, to decentralize them, let the services plan more on their own. Um, and put them in competition with each other. You're never going to re- replicate a, a really market dynamic uh, that's going to tell you exactly how to um, uh, uh, allocate your resources or to spur innovation. But you can recreate it to a certain degree because you have these powerful institutions in the military services, and you can set them uh, uh, in competition with each other for a budget share for missions, which they all want, and you'll you be able to incentivize them to, um, to innovate a little more, to use their resources a little more wisely. Would part of the competition process also include cooperation? Because I could imagine the better use of resources where two branches come together and work towards a common goal as opposed to, as opposed, not just not opposed to, but also with the competition. Goal, yeah. Well, what's what, what's ironic is that uh, part of Goldwater Nichols, the idea was to get rid of what's called log rolling, where these services, comp, uh, you know, cooperate, collude together to um, uh, get larger budget shares. Where one says, you know, I won't denigrate this weapon system if you don't intrude on this mission. The problem with Goldwater Nichols in a lot of ways is that it kind of institutionalized that system instead of getting rid of it. So now you have the ability, I mean, it, operationally, the services, while imperfectly, will will cooperate. Um, there will always be a, 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 comp- a competitive and cooperative um uh, dynamic and again, that's more. It, it's more iterative. It, it, it it's more con- context dependent, um, especially on the operational end. Um, but the the as far as planning, uh, you're, you, what you see is them almost too cooperative. Um, when say you know somebody like Rumsfeld comes in, when when McNamara was there, it's interesting. He wanted to he wanted to get rid of a lot of the inter service competition. But what he did was he knew the Air Force was too powerful at that point because they had the nuclear mission. He wanted to get more money to the uh, to, for Polaris submarines, submarine-launched ballistic missiles. So he used the, the he cultivated relationships in the Navy 
to combat the Air Force. He wanted to increase special forces. He cultivated relationships in the Army, and they were able to take on the Air Force. Donald Rumsfeld wanted to do something similar in transforming uh, uh, the the military when he was when he came in in 2001. The problem was the uh, uh, military, the the services were able to present a united front. He wasn't able to break anybody off against each other because they had this this political institution created by Goldwater Nichols where they were all unified, and basically he was able to cancel a few things around the margins. But it was very difficult. It was it was a brutal fight. Um, and obviously we see uh, Rumsfeld is, does not have the best reputation uh, for, for many reasons, that being one of them. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Rumsfeld because I believe it was September 10th, 2001. Mm-hmm. He actually declared war on the Pentagon budget mm-hmm. very publicly. I remember seeing a CBS clip about that and acknowledging that there's, I think maybe might have been a couple of trillion dollars unaccountable mm-hmm. in the Pentagon. And then, of course, 9-11 happened and, you know, all that's, all that's down, down the road. Yeah. Um, is there anyone like him, like maybe Ash Carter, or you know, speaking the same language that you know we need to do some of these changes that you're talking about? And if it's not in the services themselves, is there anyone in Congress who's promoting these kind of modifications? Well, I mean, Ash Carter is a is a very interesting guy. He's he's worked in the Pentagon on multiple occasions. He's about as knowledgeable as it gets, um, and he does have a reform streak. And there's a lot of people saying that we're at this optimum moment for reform because both uh, John McCain and Mac Thornberry at the House and uh, Senate Armed Services Committees, uh, Frank Kendall, who is the Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition, um, basically Pentagon's chief uh, weapons buyer, the um, uh, the Robert Work, who is the um, Deputy Secretary of Defense, are all very reform-minded. Well, reform can take many forms, and we can, and they can be better or worse. Um, so I don't know exactly where Ash Carter would stand on necessarily these ideas. Um, He has mentioned bringing the services more into the acquisition process where there's some support on the Hill for that. There's also some pushback within the building, within the Pentagon itself against that idea uh, just recently. Um, And what role they would play in acquisition is unclear. So you'd still, I think, I I can only guess here, but I think what he would have in mind wouldn't necessarily put them into a planning position themselves. Um, uh, It would more, or let them structure their own contracts, let them decide their own needs more. It would be, um, I I don't think it would necessarily put them in competition with each other. They would still be um, uh, pretty centralized. Um, but there is a, a, a push for reform. And uh, on the acquisition side with Mac Thornberry, which gets very deep into the weeds, there are so many regulations there that I know he wants to peel back. Some good, some bad. Um, but John McCain did something interesting that I think, at least from my perspective, I didn't necessarily expect, which was he um, he was at the Center for Strategic and International Studies recently, and he announced that he was going to review Goldwater Nichols. Now, like I said, Goldwater Nichols uh, was kind of this last centralizing uh, moment there, and it's it, it was extremely influential law, has um, uh, really underpins the structure of the military that we know today. And he asked, a, I think, are several very good questions. Um, one, I think, could be a, a bit of a game changer, though, not in the way he necessarily saw it. He asked um, if Goldwater Nichols made it a um, requirement that to make general officer, to make general or admiral, uh, you needed to serve in a joint position. Um, 
they were trying to make this idea of jointness, of the services working together, um, a cultural thing. They wanted to incentivize it. And in a lot of ways, it's gone too far. Uh, some people have described jointness as a religion, um, and include members of the military who talked about spreading the religion. Uh, and and so you really have um, uh, you know this this fervent belief in it beyond just it being a good tool for operations. So McCain asked, you know, do we want to end the joint service requirement? Now he was looking at it as becoming a just you know careerism that it was leading to star creep, where you know we have the the, the, the tremendous growth in uh, general officers and flag officers. Um, that's a good question in and of itself right there, but I think the better uh, the, there's a better reason to do it, and that's to, to, to make this much less of a cultural uh, jointness, much less of a, a, a cultural thing, much less of a religious thing. Turn it back into a tool for better coordination, for better operations, rather than just it being simply for its own sake. And that's what you see a lot. There was a study in 1998 that was very supportive of the Goldwater-Nichols reforms, but still cited concerns. Uh, one, cited this idea of spreading the religion, and then two, cited this this concern from a lot of officers that we were just doing jointness for the sake of jointness, not to be more militarily effective. Nice. So I know that in the Scandinavian Center, you do a good amount of writing. Um, you put out some good some good papers. I, the most recent one I've seen is on a review of Obama's uh, recent defense budget. Yes. Uh, where can people find more of that type of work, uh, both online, uh, in terms of website, and on Twitter? Um, well, you can go to uh, our main website, which is uh, www.niskanencenter.org. Um, that's our site. There's also my blog for my uh, my department is called Dollars in Defense. Uh, you can go to dollarsindefense.com. And I also have a Twitter handle for, um, for that department uh, called at Dollars Defense. And all of our studies, all of our blog posts, op-eds, anything we release uh, from, from my department can be found at those. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. Uh, thank you, Michael.